Part 5. Knower of the Worlds Results of the Practice Although the overwhelming majority of Westerners who entered the monastic life at Wat Ba Pong were male, there were also a small number of Western women who came to train as Mechis. Chief amongst these was an American known by her adopted name, Kam Fa, who arrived with her husband Paul after fleeing their home in Laos ahead of the communist takeover in late 1975. The couple decided to try to stay for five years, with the proviso that if at any time both of them wanted to leave, then they would do so. However, in the case that one wanted to go and the other wanted to stay, then they would both carry on and endure through the difficulties. It was challenging for both of them, but they survived the five years. At the end of every year, Lung Po would allow Mei Chi Kam Fa to go to Wat Banana Chat for a few days, where she would have the chance to speak to Paul, by then known as Venerable Titapo. But mostly their relationship was confined to the odd clandestine note, secreted in an agreed spot in the forest on the Mei Chi's route to the kitchen. In many ways it was harder for Mei Chi Kam Fa. As a nun, she had much less access to Lung Po, and in the Mechi section, her inspiration could easily waver. But Venerable Titapo did not find monastic life easy either, and sometimes he would probably have preferred the distance from Lung Po that his wife resented. By the late 1970s, Lung Po had become a more grandfatherly figure, but the old fire and ability to give corrosive admonishments would occasionally resurface. He could also accomplish the effect of a scolding without speaking a word, as he demonstrated one day when he caught Venerable Titapo breaking a key monastic regulation. Private supplies of tea, coffee, sugar and so on were forbidden at Wat Bapong. Everybody was expected to be content with whatever communal drinks were provided. However, a number of the Western monks, Venerable Titapo included, persuaded themselves that they were a special case in this respect, and if they were discreet enough about it, boiling a pot of water in the forest and having a cup of tea together was a minor, harmless indulgence. Every now and again they would meet at Venerable Titapo's kuti, where an ancient black kettle was secreted. One day Venerable Titapo received a parcel of fine teas from his sister in England, in the late afternoon, he made a small fire in the forest behind his kuti, at a spot where the smoke would not be visible from the path, to enjoy a first cup of the new batch. But when an involuntary shiver passed through his body, he quickly turned around to see a motionless and stone-faced Long Paw watching him. It was the proverbial nightmare come true. Long Paw walked over to the illicit supplies, lifted up his walking stick, and knocked over a few jars of tea with a crash, spat on the ground, and walked off in silence. Long Po spent most of the second half of 1979 overseeing the renovation of the monastery in Bangkok, where he had spent his first years in the robes. Towards the end of the year, Venerable Titapo was assigned as his attendant. One day, a group of Thai visitors began to praise the Western monks for their renunciation and dedication. Lung Po agreed, yes, his Western disciples were accomplished. Many of them could chant the Patimoka. They're all very intelligent, he paused dramatically, except for this one. He pointed to Ditapo. He's really stupid. Afterwards, Lung Po asked Titapo slyly if he got angry when he treated him like that. Titapo said, 
How can you get angry with a mountain? Lung Po was delighted. Laughing, he turned to one of the novices by his side. Write that down. <laughs> Write that down. Eventually, the five years were up. In the last few months, Kumfa's growing sense of isolation in the Mechi section had been exploited by a fundamentalist Christian missionary. This had culminated somewhat bizarrely in her conversion. Maybe she's right, said a deadpan Lung Po, startling a Jan Sumedo who brought the news. After their departure, ex Titapo adopted his wife's faith. The couple sent letters to Western monks lamenting what they called the aridity of Buddhist spirituality and exulting in what they believed to be a shared sense of Christ's presence. One of the main complaints was that after five years in the Wat, they could see no tangible results from their practice. No matter how much they had tried, life had always seemed to remain pretty much the same. These comments were passed on to Luang Por. Then, one day, a photo of the couple with their first child arrived in the post. It was shown to Luang Por. He looked at it for a moment and then said, At last, they've seen the results of their practice. Nature and Nurture Whereas Luang Por had obviously thought that Venerable Titapo would benefit from blunt or humbling words, he saw others were more in need of attention and nurture. Venerable Varapanyo was a member of this group. As a young monk, Venerable Varapanyo struggled with a craving for sugar, which culminated in him gorging on a packet of candies sent in a care package from home. The lapse propelled him into a frenzy of guilt and self-loathing. He went to confess to Luang Por. I blurted out, I'm impure, my mind is soiled, I'm no good. He looked very concerned. What is it? he asked. I told him the story. Naturally, he was amused, and within a few minutes, I realized that he had me laughing. I was very light-hearted. The world was no longer about to end. In fact, I'd forgotten about my burden. This was one of his most magical gifts. You could feel so burdened and depressed and hopeless, and after being around him for a few minutes, it all vanished and you found yourself laughing. Sometimes, you only needed to go and sit down at his kuti, be around him as he spoke to others. Even when he was away, I would get a contact high of peacefulness as soon as I got near his kuti to clean up or sweep leaves. But it was the opportunity to serve as Lung Po's attendant that was to have the most profound effect. There was usually a lot of competition for the honour of waiting on him, but I was allowed to go to his kuti for the early morning chores before dawn. It meant getting up earlier in the chilly mornings, but I was inspired. The more I hung around him, the safer I felt. He would give me little discourses from time to time, keep checking to see how I was doing, ask me about my past, etc. I began to feel, here is somebody unshakable, like a mountain. To believe in God, is to know that somebody, somewhere, is not stupid. It really seemed to me that I had found that somebody. He was to me what you always expect your father, family doctor, priest, teacher, Santa Claus and Superman to be all rolled into one. He would keep on pulling rabbits out of the hat, teachings, things to do, medicines, whatever. 
so that the situation began to feel open-ended, like there were unlimited possibilities awaiting me, much different from the dreary path I'd imagined for so long. So in the morning, I would boil water and bring hot and cold water for him to wash his face. When he came downstairs, I would give him the water and kneel there with a towel, while one of the novices took his false teeth to clean them. Usually he'd walk around with the towel afterwards and let me follow, until he finally gave it to me to hang up. His robes would be made ready to put on for arms round, but first he would check things out at his kuti, throw some rice to the wild chickens, sit down and talk, drink tea. Occasionally, a couple of nuns would come at this time to discuss something. It was always interesting to watch the local monks and nuns when they came to see him. They spoke to him with the utmost deference, almost as if they were terrified of him. With us Westerners, he was usually the kindly old man, though over the years I was to see him play many different roles. He could make you love him or hate him, feel respect, fear, doubt or disgust for him, and he could juggle your mind states around quite rapidly. For me at that time, he was instilling faith. Those early morning scenes were especially effective. The wat was almost empty, most of the monks having left earlier for the other arms round routes, and we were limited to about 15 minutes before we had to go. So the situation felt intensified. Despite the fact that it was so funny to see the great man sitting there with all his teeth out, all of a sudden looking like a little old Ukrainian grandmother. In the afternoons, after sweeping his kuti, emptying his spittoon and so on, I would sit down for a while to listen as he spoke to whoever was there, sometimes to talk or maybe be given a cup of tea, but mostly just to be there. After the guests were gone, he took his bath. With a few of us helping him, holding his towel, taking his robe, offering the dry bathing cloth, washing his back and feet, cleaning his sandals. As Venerable Varapanyo became more settled and confident, Lung Po started to use him as a figure in his teaching stories. Varapanyo usually filled the role of the fool, sometimes the fool who never got it right, sometimes the fool who sees the light. It was getting cold, and a monk who was leaving suggested that his kuti might be a bit more comfortable, since it was smaller and less drafty, so I moved but it was near the wall of the Wat, and the farmers would pass by with their buffalo in the daytime. This disturbed me because I was still convinced that meditation and noise don't mix. So after a few days, I moved back. Someone noticed, of course, the CIA has nothing on the monastic grapevine, and duly reported it to Lung Po. He questioned me about it, and over the years, I was to hear the story many times, expanded and embellished. He would often use incidents like this, somewhat tailored to fit his purpose to teach. He would tell people about learning the mind's tricks, how it becomes bored and dissatisfied, always wanting something else. Take Varapanyo, for example. He came to Wat Bapong and was sitting in his kuti, but he wasn't happy. He moved all his things and went to live in the other kuti, but he wasn't happy there either. So he thought the first kuti was better, and he moved back there. He always told the stories in a very gentle and funny way. Everyone would have a good laugh, and he would make his point. 
It's the mind that does it all. Know your mind. March and April were the cruelest months for hot weather. The Western monks would drag themselves around, occasionally lapsing into daydreams of a cooling thunderstorm. The heat was a torment with the fatigue and discomfort it brought me. One afternoon, somebody brought ice drinks from town. I drank several glasses and felt so relieved that I soon started thinking, I could have my family donate an ice machine to Watpapong. It could be run on the generator a few hours each day and we would always have ice. It seemed like a perfectly valid thought to me. Finally, I began to realize that the Buddha lived in the forest and did his ascetic practices without our modern conveniences such as ice, so I could probably endure and survive without it. I later told Lung Po of this episode I'd gone through in my mind. It became one of his teaching stories about how to contemplate situations to eliminate unnecessary suffering. Varapanyo was living in the forest and the hot season came. He was so hot he was really unhappy. All he could think about was ice. But then he contemplated. When the Buddha lived in the forest, did he have ice? No, he didn't. This was wisdom arising, so then he became happy. His problem was resolved. Nobody knows. Luang Po could be so acute and penetrating about the general ways of the world that the Western monks could be surprised at how little interest he had in the details of that world and how little knowledge. Nevertheless, he occasionally showed curiosity about the West and its culture and customs. One day he asked Ajahn Sumedho what hippies were, and after listening to the description said that it sounded like they would make good monks. Venerable Varapanyo recalled, Occasionally Lung Po would ask about Western life and customs, about my past experiences, about science, Astronomy was usually interesting to the Thais. He was disinterested, in that he obviously wasn't hankering after anything. Yet he was very interested, because he all of a sudden had on his hands several of these people from a part of the world he knew hardly anything about, and he cared about us. One thing he never showed any interest in was politics, either domestic or international. One day, some time after Nixon was re-elected, he said, Nixon ran away with it. A visitor must have told him, and he just passed it on to me with that one line. And then one time, when a few of us went to see him, he said, CIA. Nobody knows who they are. Who is the CIA? Nobody knows. And that was the extent of the political discussion I can remember having with him. Parental Caution At one point in the ordination ceremony, the applicant is asked in the midst of the Sangha, Anunyato si matapituhi? Do you have your parents' permission? And he replies, Ama pante? Yes, Venerable Sir. It's fortunate that a candidate's failure to admit parental opposition at this juncture does not invalidate the ceremony for many Western monks were unable to gain the blessing of their parents until long after the admission into the Sangha. Some monks endured years of rejection by their families, 
Others received regular letters begging them to come home, impossible to discard unopened, but heart-wringing to read beyond the first few lines. For their part, some parents were agonized by thoughts of their son as a brainwashed member of a strange cult in the heart of a steamy jungle. Others felt hurt at the rejection of their own values and religious traditions and grieved at the loss of dreams they cherished for their son. Even those parents who respected and supported their son's choice, the numbers of whom probably exceed those that did not, had to cope with the sorrow of knowing it might be years before they saw him again. Some monks succumbed to the pressure of emotional blackmail. One was tricked into returning to England by a telegram falsely informing him that his mother had had a heart attack. For others, when their practice faltered, knowing that their parents disapproved of what they were doing made it harder for them to justify to themselves the pain they were causing. Lack of parental support was often a factor, sometimes a decisive one, when monks afflicted by doubts, discouragement or sensual desires were considering a return to the lay life. However, in almost every case of the monks who stayed on, their parents eventually came round. At last, a conciliatory letter would arrive, announcing a visit or offering a plane ticket for a visit home, expressing acceptance of their son's way of life. Luang Po went out of his way to welcome the parents of his Western disciples to Wat Bapong. The warmth and kindness he showed to them was dialed up to such a dazzling intensity that few could resist. Most parents would be thoroughly charmed and their worries put to rest. Even the most sceptical of parents would show signs of thawing. I must say, he certainly got something about him, they'd say after meeting him, or admit, well, he does seem like a very nice man. Also, they saw positive changes in their sons, which they could not help but feel proud of. They were impressed by the great reverence with which the monks were treated by people on every level of Thai society. Even if, in their heart of hearts, they hoped that their son might someday give up the robe. At least, for the time being, their minds were at peace. In the early 1980s, there began an ultimately unsuccessful attempt to start a Mechi community at Wat Banana Chat. A young woman from Hong Kong, Sister Sudama, became one of its first members. Her parents were extremely upset, and the mother wrote at regular intervals, imploring her daughter to come home. The nun wrote back, politely refusing, and asking for time and understanding. On receiving it, the mother immediately replied with a threat to kill herself. The nun became very anxious, not really believing the threat, not wanting to return to Hong Kong, and yet unsure of the right thing to do. Lung Po advised her not to disrobe, but to invite her mother to come to visit. He said, She feels this antipathy because not having seen for herself what you're doing, She's imagining a lot of bad things. He made a comparison. To tell you the truth, I was like that once. But with cheese, ugh, I hated the smell of it. It was awful. When I went to the West, everybody reeked of the stuff. But I got closer and closer to it. And then, one day they gave me some. I thought I might as well give it a try. Hmm, it was pretty good. Now, I think it's delicious. These days, I eat more than the Westerners do. I used to think it smelt like chicken shit, and now I like it. So stay. It won't be long, and your mother will come. 
which she did, and after the initial suspicion and paranoia had worn off, she began to understand, if not condone, her daughter's decision and returned to Hong Kong with her mind much calmed. Another occasion on which Lung Po's skills in diplomacy were displayed came with the arrival of Randy, later Ajahn Kitisaro, a champion wrestler and Rhodes scholar from Tennessee. During his summer break from Oxford, Randy had travelled to Thailand to research Thai Buddhism. There he met Lung Po and became inspired by him to become a monk. Randy's parents were shocked and deeply worried. They flew out to Thailand to save him from brainwashing and the ruin of his future. On meeting Lung Po, however, their concerns dissolved. They were impressed at the changes they saw in their son, a newfound self-discipline, calmness and resolve. Lung Po put forward Randy's novice ordination in order that his parents could be present to see their son enter the Sangha before they returned home. On the morning of the ceremony, they went into town and bought food to offer the Sangha of Wat Banana Chat as a celebratory offering on an auspicious day. A Snake in the House Over the years, many Western lay people came to stay at Wat Bapong. A large number arrived without any intention of becoming monks or nuns, but simply with the wish to meet and receive teachings from Luang Po and to participate for some time in the life of the monastic community. Usually, Luang Po would delegate basic teaching duties to a senior Western monk, but every now and again, he would give a Dhamma talk to the lay guests or answer their questions. It is sometimes alleged that monks are dismissive of lay practice and that great masters reserve the most profound teachings for those who have made a commitment to monastic life. This was not the case with Luang Po. Western lay guests, with a sincere interest in practice, energized him. Indeed, monks would become excited if they knew that Luang Po was going to give a Dhamma talk to the foreign lay guests because of the profundity of the Dhamma that they might expect to hear. One talk, subsequently published as Living with the Cobra, gives a good idea of the flavor of these teachings. In it, Luang Po compared mental states, both positive and negative, to poisonous snakes. Identifying with a mental state, he said, was like letting yourself be bitten by a cobra. The separation from the truth of things that results from that identification is like death from the cobra's poison. All mental states are like cobras. If nothing obstructs their path, they just glide along their way. Even though they possess venom, it's inside them. They're of no danger to us as long as we don't go near them. They just do what cobras naturally do. Intelligent people let go of attachment to everything, both good and bad. They let go of both what they like and what they dislike. It's as if we were to release a cobra from captivity. It would slither away, taking its poison with it. And that's the way we release mental states. We release the good and bad with an awareness of their nature. We don't touch them, don't take hold of them, because we don't want anything. We don't want good or bad, heavy or light, pleasure or pain. A conclusion is reached and lucid calm is firmly established.
He taught that the path of practice was founded on the development of mindfulness and alertness. When these two factors were mature, the wisdom faculty would arise naturally and meditators would then be wakeful day and night. Practitioners would be close to the Buddha at all times. The term arising of wisdom means that through clearly seeing how all phenomena arise and fall according to causes and conditions, meditators abandon attachment to them as self or adjuncts of self. When things arise, we know. When they cease, we know. When there's happiness, we know. And when there's unhappiness, we know. Once we know, we don't take possession of that happiness or unhappiness. When there's no sense of possession of those feelings, then all that remains is the simple process of arising and ceasing. You let it follow its natural course because there's nothing there worth attaching to. At this time, Lung Po had been reading Zen Buddhist texts and gave his own view on the relationship between Nibbana and Sangsara discussed in them. The Buddha said that Nibbana is cessation. Where does that cessation take place? Well, it's like a fire. It's extinguished wherever it springs up, wherever it's burning. You cool something at the point where it's hot. It's the same with Nibbana and Sangsara. They lie in the same place. The Buddha taught us to put out the fire of Sangsara that is inner turmoil. Bringing inner turmoil to cessation is called putting out the fire. External fires are hot, and when they've been put out, there's coolness. The inner heat of greed, hatred and delusion are also fires. Think about it. When sexual desire arises in the mind, it's hot, isn't it? If anger arises, it's hot. If delusion arises, it's hot. It's this heat which the Buddha called the fires. When fires spring up, there's heat. When they're extinguished, there's coolness. Nibbana is the state that cools the heat. The Buddha called it peace, the cessation of the wheel of birth and death. Then, at the end of the discourse, Lung Po descended from the exalted level in which he had been dwelling to address some warm personal words to the elderly Englishwoman who was the recipient of the talk. When you first arrived, you cried. When I saw your tears, I felt happy. Why was that? Because I knew you were going to be studying the true Dhamma. If no tears flow, then you won't see the Dhamma because the fluid in tears is bad stuff. You have to let it all out before you can feel at ease. So please, take this Dhamma away with you and put it into practice. Practice in order to transcend suffering. Die before death and be peaceful and at ease. But occasionally, Lung Po could treat foreign guests with great abruptness. One day, a Western woman arrived at Lung Po's kuti while he was talking to some of the monks. He asked one of the Western monks present to ask her what she wanted. The monk translated, She's asking permission to stay. She'd like to receive teachings from Lung Po. Lung Po scowled. 
Tell her that there's no teaching here. All I do is torment people. After shocking everyone in earshot, Lung Po relented and the woman was led away to the Mechi section. Lung Po gave no reason for his words and each person was left to speculate on why Lung Po thought this particular woman would benefit from such a welcome. For the Western monks, living with loose ends such as these, when they weren't quite sure what just happened, was a normal part of the life at Wat Bapong. On another occasion, a European academic arrived with a questionnaire. He asked Lung Po through a translator, Why do you practice? How do you practice? What are the results of your practice? Lung Po replied, Why do you eat? How do you eat? What are the results of your eating? Lung Po smiled. The scholar frowned and asked for an explanation. Think about it. Why do you eat? Because you're hungry. And if you don't eat, you'll suffer. Why do we practice? Because we're hungry. Food relieves the pain of physical hunger and Dhamma practice relieves mental and spiritual hunger. If the mind is suffering, then you must use Dhamma to alleviate it. How do we practice? Just as we put food in our stomachs, so we must put Dhamma in our heart. What are the results of our practice? Well, it's just like eating. The results of eating are that your stomach is full of food. The results of practicing are that your heart is full of Dhamma.